Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, uh, your um, host and uh, organizational uh, sponsor uh, for today's forum. Um, tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in Fisher v. Texas, a challenge to the affirmative action uh, practices of the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, for nearly half a century now, the nation has been torn by this practice and by the question whether, especially in its use by public institutions, it's consistent with the Constitution's equal protection guarantees. The Supreme Court uh, last wrestled with this issue nine years ago, producing what uh, Justice Antonin Scalia called a split doubleheader uh, in a pair of cases coming from the University of Michigan. The court rejected the more uh, explicit practices of the College of the University of Michigan, but upheld the vaguer practices of the law school uh, in decisions that seemed to satisfy neither side, but did produce the famous words of Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, that perhaps uh, we would not need to face these issues in another 25 years. Well, here we are nine years later facing them again, but with a new court, which is why all eyes will be on the court tomorrow. But as if to heighten uh, the interest uh, with uh, exquisite timing, uh, there's just appeared a new book from Basic Books uh, the title of which uh, pretty much describes what the book is about. It is Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students, It's Intended to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. Uh, the book is rich in empirical data uh, that has not been credibly uh, discredited, and I perhaps can give you a flavor of it no better than by quoting from one of the book's blurbs by Clarence Page, the well-known uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning syndicated columnist uh, with the Chicago Tribune, himself an African-American. He writes, as a high-profile defender of affirmative action, I used to think the so-called mismatch problem was a bit overblown. Richard Sander and Stuart Taylor have caused me to think again. How many bright and promising minority students, we must ask, have failed because they were steered, with the best intentions, of course, into elite schools for which they were less prepared academically than most of their classmates. What better ways can we devise to boost academic achievement and expand the pool of qualified students of all races? We don't do future generations of students any favors by trying to ignore this issue or pretend it doesn't exist. And so we're going to discuss these issues and the case that's being argued tomorrow in this forum today. The uh, drill is going to be as follows. We're going to start with the book's two authors, starting first of all uh, with um, Professor Sander and then with uh, Stuart Taylor. And then we're going to have uh, critiques of both the book and the um, uh, case from first of all Roger Clegg, uh, and then from Alan Morrison, who 
completed his course just a few minutes ago over at uh, the, uh, George Washington University and is on his bicycle pedaling <laughs> over here as we meet, and he will be joining us in just a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to introduce each of our speakers before he speaks. Uh, Richard Sander and um, Stuart Taylor are going to speak for roughly 12 minutes and 8 minutes, respectively. And then the two commenters are going to speak for about 15 minutes. We will then have a give and take for a brief time uh, between them. And we will then open it up to questions from the floor, after which we will retire for our lunch. OK, let's start then with Professor Richard Sander, who is a professor uh, of law at UCLA. He's been working on questions of social and economic inequality for nearly his entire career. After earning a BA in social studies at Harvard, he joined the Federal VISTA program in 1978 and worked for a small neighborhood housing group on Chicago's South Side, organizing tenant unions and building uh, re receiverships. This is starting to sound a little familiar here. Like <laughs> <laughs> Deeply impressed with the work of the South Shore Bank, an experimental community development bank owned by churches and foundations, he secured funding from three federal agencies and, with the Woodstock Institute, completed the first detailed study of the bank. South Shore Bank was widely imitated as an instrument for community revitalization in other urban areas over the next two decades. During the 1980s, Professor Sander earned a law degree and a PhD in economics from Northwestern University. In his law review comment and his dissertation, he sought to understand why fair housing laws had seemingly produced widespread integration in some American metropolitan areas, but very little integration in most. During much of this period, he served on the board of the Rogers Park Tenants Committee and worked on the election effort and subsequent transition team of Harold Washington, Chicago's first black mayor. In 1979, he joined the faculty of UCLA, yet the community work he'd been doing continued over a wide range of issues. Most relevant for our discussion today, in 2004, Professor Sander published a comprehensive study of affirmative action in American law schools, focusing particularly on the ways in which large preferences imposed unexpected but substantial costs on their intended beneficiaries. Please welcome Richard Sander. Thank you very much, Roger, for that introduction. And thank you to Roger and Cato for sponsoring this event. I'm, I'm very grateful to have such a great kickoff to, to the book, which is actually being officially published today. Um, as Roger mentioned, I'm going to, I'm going to start and uh, talk a little bit about the mismatch idea itself and, and some of what we found in the book. Stuart's going to try to relate this more to Fisher and, and what will be happening tomorrow. Um, I'm particularly glad to be doing this at Cato because, uh, because it's, it stood for a lot of the values that, that I think are in the book. And I first became aware of Cato back in the early 1980s when I was mostly doing community organizing, but in the evenings was thinking about uh, policy issues and whether I should go back to graduate school and become a, a policy type person. And a big issue that was certainly at the time was social security reform. And uh, started trying to analyze what was happening and came up with this idea that um, 
that Social Security is then structured was providing enormous subsidies. People were receiving much more in benefits than they paid in. And the interesting thing was that they, the subsidies were largest for the upper middle class. Um, so I thought this was a, you know, a great revelation and, and should be part of, the, um, part of the policy debate. And I started looking around and nobody seemed to be talking about this. But then I found a little book published by Cato, which had figured it all out and, uh, and was trying, not with very much success, to get, uh, to get those ideas into the policy debate. So Cato has always meant to me uh, sort of a willingness to look at the facts and try to figure out what's actually going on. Um, you have to be sort of interested in uh, how politics is actually going to work, but the first thing you want to do is, is actually figure out the dynamics and, and take an empirical approach. Um, and another analogy to our work on affirmative action is that at the time, back in the early 80s, imagine how easy it would have been to fix Social Security's problems and put it on a sound basis. Um, 30 years later, it's going to be a much harder problem to deal with. And affirmative action, I think, is, is analogous because today we have perhaps the greatest degree of racial peace and, and in many senses the greatest feeling of racial justice in the United States that we've ever had. This is a good time to deal with this issue that has been lingering for a while. Um, we may not. We may make it harder to deal with later on, but, but I hope that I hope we'll, we'll make progress this year. Um, as Roger mentioned, I first got interested in the question of mismatch when I was uh, innocently working on uh, administrative issues for the law school where I taught. And I was very interested in the idea of academic support, how admissions worked, how our students did after they graduated. And it didn't take long to sort of look at what was happening to sense that something like mismatch might be important. We were admitting students at UCLA with large preferences who had about a 90% chance of graduating, but only about a 50% chance of passing the bar. Welcome. Thank you. So that cumulatively meant that uh, only about 45% of the students with large preferences that we were admitting actually went on to smoothly go through law school and, and get their law degrees. It wasn't hard to look at other schools in Los Angeles that uh, where our students with preferences would have gotten in without preferences to see that, uh, that those students seem to have much better outcomes. So I started looking into this and looked for relevant databases that could help test it. And, uh, <laughs> and by 2004, 2005, uh, developed the paper that, uh, that sort of first discussed the mismatch issue in the law school context. And found that this was really quite a large problem, that, uh, that nationally, the great bulk of uh, minority students, especially African American students, were receiving very large preferences typically on a scale of a couple hundred, the equivalent of a couple hundred SAT points or 10 LSAT points, 10 to 15 LSAT points, that uh, bar passage rates were generally very poor for this group. Uh, only about a third of blacks starting law school in the early 2000s were graduating and passing the bar in their first attempt. Um, and uh, this, was, this was affecting the lives of a very substantial, very large majority of, of people who were or supposedly being helped by preferences. What really struck me, though, when, when the article came out was the institutional response. Uh, the collective unwillingness of, of a great many legal academics to engage this at all. Uh, the instinctive reaction of a lot of institutions to further restrict data that was already extremely hard to get. 
and further obscure processes that were not revealed. The fact that there was really no law school in the country where somebody who received a large preference could get accurate information about what their actual prospects were if they went to a particular law school. So I became interested in, in trying to look at this more broadly, and the Searle Foundation uh, contacted me in 2007, and they were very interested in trying to get good, empirically-based, non-ideological research done. And together, we, uh, we commission a number of efforts to shake loose data from various institutions and to find disinterested social scientists who, who want to work on, this, on these problems. Over time, partly through that effort and partly through lots of other independent efforts, a lot of mismatch research has been done, with the vast majority of it peer-reviewed and published in excellent journals. So we now know that science mismatches are a pervasive problem, uh, that, that although blacks are more likely than similar whites to want to major in sciences and engineering when they go to college, they're much less likely to get what we call STEM degrees, science, engineering, math degrees, if they receive a large preference. A study by Fred Smythe at the University of Virginia found that, that if you take two blacks who, or two students of any color, who one of whom receives a large preference, one of whom doesn't, student who receives a preference has about a 40% larger chance of dropping out of science on his path through. Mismatch also affects uh, academically inclined students who receive large preferences, would like to become university professors or go into academics someday, but very predominantly receive low academic grades, cluster at the bottom of the class, and decide that academics is not for them. The biggest mismatch experiment was in California, where voters passed Proposition 209. And we had a large quasi-natural experiment of what happens when, uh, when racial preferences are banned from an entire university system. The results of Prop 209 are extremely clear for anyone who, who bothers to look. Um, within a half dozen years of the implementation of race neutrality, the number of blacks in the University of California system had gone up by about 30%. The number of blacks receiving bachelor degrees had gone up by about 70%. The numbers were even larger for Hispanics. GPAs had gone up. Persistence in science had gone up. Virtually every outcome had been a dramatic improvement. The only thing, the only thing that critics can point to as a problem with, uh, with Prop 2 and I was that there were fewer African Americans at, uh, at Berkeley and UCLA, the most elite campuses, which had used the largest preferences when racial preferences were permitted. But this was not actually a bad outcome. Those students who were, had been admitted to Berkeley and UCLA were still going to UC schools. They had much higher success rates. And because Berkeley and UCLA had hoarded so many minority students, having the national reputation to do so, the race neutrality after 2 and 9 actually increased the level of integration across UC campuses. Um, one of the things that we talk about in the book is a uh, so-called cascade effect. Can I borrow that? Sure. Um, when elite universities admit students, we have a, a four-page graphic in the book to illustrate this. Um, the most elite schools have the first pick at the students they would like to admit through preferences. So those very elite schools admit not only the very top uh, African-American and Hispanic candidates, but they also admit students who are in the second, third, and fourth tiers of academic achievement. This means that when the second tier schools want to use preferences, they really have to start fairly, down the fairly far down the ladder. And ironically, that means that the largest preferences are not used by the most elite schools. They're used by schools that are actually in the third or fourth tier of, of all colleges. 
This is very important for a couple of reasons. One is that it helps explain sort of the, the strong uh, knee-jerk defense of, of preferences that's often led by leaders at the most elite universities. Uh, Derek Bach and William Bowen come to mind. Uh, because they look at their universities, and in fact, the effects of preferences are significantly more moderated in those contexts. The worst effects of mismatch are at the second, third, and lower tiers. Um, the second interesting effect of the cascade is that it means that even though only 20, 25% of all colleges in America use our, our highly selective institutions, uh, they absorb so much of the talented pool of minority students that even schools, say, second-tier state universities that simply have threshold requirements to get in are still going to have a very large disparity among their students and their qualifications, which is significantly aggravated by the use of preferences at the more elite schools. And that means that mismatch is something that affects a really broad swath of higher education. How much time do I have left? Got another two or three minutes. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is another empirical side of, of uh, racial preferences, the side that's got to be prominent in the discussions in Fisher, which is the, the diversity interest of, uh, of schools in, in having a diverse racial climate. One of the really interesting things that, that research has shown in recent years that we talk about some in the book is how much those diversity effects are moderated by the academic distance that exists in schools. In other words, when you admit students with large preferences, they're much less likely to socially interact with, with peers of other races. This has been very well documented by research uh, by Peter Arsidiakono and others. Um, there's also uh, self-doubt effects that result from getting low grades. There are reinforcement of stereotypes. One study even found that students who, uh, who believe that they were admitted on a preference are much more vulnerable to stereotype threat. So diversity research, when looked at carefully, actually fits very nicely, fits very closely into mismatch findings. So with all this, about half the book documents these various effects. And then we go into uh, the problems of institutional behavior. And, uh, and that's a really large part of the problem. It's one thing to try to demonstrate these effects exist, and we think very convincing evidence does. But it's another to try to get any institution of higher education to deal with that. One needs only look at the lineup of amicus briefs and Fisher to see how incredibly uniform is the, the solidarity of higher education behind the existing preferences regime. It's a non-starter. It's very difficult to try to get these issues uh, raised. And institutions that want to follow a different path, like George Mason Law School, which we have a chapter in the book about, find themselves uh, at the mercy of accreditation com committees which want to enforce very rigid racial preference standards across all colleges. One of the things that we find is that even the Supreme Court has, uh, has been somewhat complicit in this in the past, that in Grutter and Gratz, they issued standards for implementing preferences, but, uh, but Justice O'Connor applied them in such a loose way that it's been very well documented by Roger Clegg as well as by some research that we've done that schools used larger preferences more mechanically after the Grutter decision in 2003. Stewart's going to go much more into those issues. So we tried to write a book that would be interesting to experts, uh, important for them to engage in, but also accessible to a much broader readership. We tried to write a book that, uh, that was dispassionate about policy, but passionate about the scale and severity of the problem. Uh, we'll have to let you judge whether we succeeded. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Professor Sander. We're now going to hear from um, Professor Sander's co-author, Stuart Taylor, co-author of the book out just today, Mismatch. And by the way, those in the audience can purchase it just outside. Uh, otherwise, just go to your uh, local bookstore or to um, uh, any of the uh, online services to, pick, to get a copy. It's published by Basic Books. Stuart Taylor um, is an author and freelance journalist focusing on legal and policy issues. Uh, he uh, also uh, writes for National Journal, uh, contributing editor, uh, where he's a contributing editor. Uh, he's a Stanford Law School lecturer and occasionally a practicing lawyer, his bio says. He's also a non-resident fellow at Brookings Institution. His current focus is on constitutional law, media law, and the Supreme Court. Uh, he has been uh, a senior writer for American uh, Lawyer Media. Uh, he has been a distinguished lecturer in writing at Princeton University, a reporter and Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times and an attorney with Wilmer uh, Cutler. He's a graduate of Princeton University and um, I believe it's the, Har uh, the Harvard, Harvard Law School, yes. Uh, please welcome Stuart Taylor. Thank you very much, Roger, uh, and please accept my heartfelt thanks to you and to Cato for giving us this opportunity to, uh, to try and uh, talk about our new book. Uh, as Rick said, I'm going to focus more on the case in the Supreme Court. I'll give the basics of that case, and then I'll talk a little bit about the relevance of our book's evidence about mismatch, et cetera, uh, to the case. Um, this case, uh, we didn't know about this case when we started the book, and the case does not dwell on the issues that the book focuses on, but we think that solutions to the issues the book focuses on are pretty similar to the solutions to the overall racial preference problem, uh, basically reducing the size of preferences and making them more transparent. Abby Fisher, Abigail Fisher, is a student who brought this suit. Uh, she was not admitted to the University of Texas. They take uh, roughly 10% of their, well, no, they take roughly 85, 90% of their students through what's called the top 10% plan under a law that says if you're in the top 10% or roughly top 10% of your high school class you, in Texas, you are automatically admitted to the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, she was not in the top 10%. She was close, but she was at a good school. She had you know, pretty good grades, pretty good average. She thought she would have gotten in, but for racial preferences. She, she knew uh, people she thought was less qualified, were less qualified than she was who got in, whose grades and test scores were lower than hers, et cetera. So she sued, um, uh, saying she should have been admitted. She, meanwhile, went to Louisiana State University, did fine, and graduated. But her, her suit lives on. She lost in the lower courts in Texas, which are obliged to apply strictly Supreme Court precedent, uh, the lower courts in Texas, federal district court and the federal U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, uh, both held that the University of Texas plan, which was modeled on the University of Michigan Law School plan that had been upheld in 2003 in Grutter v. Bollinger, that, that it had followed the University of Michigan plan closely enough so that the court was obliged to uphold it. Even one justice, Justice Judge, Judge Garza, who said he hated racial preferences and would love to strike them down, uh, said that, uh, that he had no choice but to uphold this one as a matter of Supreme Court 
precedent. By the way, seven of the other 16 justices on that circuit disagreed and thought that you could strike it down under the Grutter precedent. Uh, so the case uh, finds its way to the Supreme Court, and it's likely, uh, I think, to perhaps become the most important uh, case in history on racial preferences. Not so much because there's anything that extraordinary about this case, but the, the composition of the court has changed since the 2003 cases, which gave a fairly green light, uh, the Grutter case, to racial preferences, very large racial preferences, it seems, as long as they're camouflaged beneath a kind of complicated holistic thing. Holistic has been like, that word is like we sprinkled holy water over our preferences by making them holistic. And uh, so here's how it works at the University of Texas. They have an academic index for people who are applying outside the top 10%. They have a personal achievement index. And the personal achievement index has many components. And one of them is race. It is a personal achievement in Texas to be born black or Hispanic. It is not such a good achievement to be born Hispanic, I'm sorry, to be born Asian or white. Literally, that's what they call it, the personal achievement index. They also emphasize, well, we have many kinds of personal achievements we consider. Race is only one little thing. We often don't take it into account. Uh, it's only a little finger on the scales. That's the pitch that the University of Texas makes to the courts and others. The numbers tell a different story. Um, the, the best way to tell whether there's a racial preference in operation, whatever they call it, is to compare the entering academic credentials of different racial groups after they arrive on campus. And when you do that comparison, the most recent numbers we've seen, 2009, looking at those University of Texas freshmen who were accepted outside the top 10% system, uh, the gaps were 467 SAT points between the mean Asian score on the SAT and the mean black score on the SAT. There were only 390 points between the mean white score and the mean black score on the SAT. Well, that's on a 2400 scale. Those are enormous racial gaps. The idea that this is a tiebreaker or a little finger on the scales uh, does not withstand analysis. And this is pretty true almost at all big universities in the country, all big selective universities in the country. Here, as elsewhere, the racial gaps are very large. Now, from a mismatch standpoint, that means that the students who are at the lower end of those gaps are very likely to struggle academically and have the kinds of press problems that Rick described. Those problems were not the focus of this litigation. Abby Fisher's complaint was that she was discriminated against for being white, she wasn't talking about how the black students fared, and that's the traditional approach. And the University of Texas, again, claims, well, we're just doing it the way the University of Michigan Law School did it, and so we're okay. There are a number of distinctions between the cases, though, that we think will, will help the, you know, the now more skeptical about racial preferences court uh, strike down these preferences. They wouldn't have to overrule the Grutter case to do so, because the Grutter case, uh, Justice O'Connor uh, articulated some principles that were supposed to limit the size and duration of racial preferences to avoid abuses, uh, and, but she didn't really enforce them. But they remain on the books. You're supposed to pursue race-neutral alternatives before you resort to race. Well, the Texas did. They have this 10% plan. They get a lot of racial diversity and other diversity from the 10% plan. Did they really need to use individual racial preferences on top of it? 
That's one argument in her favor. Another argument is that in the court has said no racial balancing, meaning you cannot uh, try to mirror in your state's university's composition the racial uh, proportions of the statewide population. That is unconstitutional, the court has said. Um, well, in Texas, although they haven't gotten very close to racial proportionality, that is an explicit goal of their plan. We want to come closer to racial proportionality with uh, people statewide. Another principle of Grutter was that this isn't supposed to go on forever. In fact, we think it should end within 25 years. That nine of those 25 years are gone. So universities are supposed to be preparing to phase out racial preferences within the next 16 years. No university anywhere that we know of intends to do anything except perpetuate racial preferences as far as the eye can see for decades, maybe 50, maybe 100 years. And one way the University of Texas manifests that intention is that they say they want a critical mass of every racial group in every class. And they're trying to get there through a system of preferences that systematically channels people of different racial groups into different classes when blacks are dropping out of science because they can't compete with the whites in science and going into other courses, that isn't producing uh, critical mass. And so this will go on for a very long time. How late am I? Um, so um, as Rick mentioned, since Grutter, his research and other research has demonstrated uh, that universities, in particular law schools, in particular the University of Michigan undergraduate school, and their plan was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2003 because they had an explicit racial point system. If you're black, you get, if you're black or Hispanic or Asian, you get 20 points. If you had an A average instead of a B average in high school, you get 20 points, one full grade point. That was a little bit too explicit for Justice O'Connor's taste. She struck that down, but under the supposed holistic system that they substituted for it, they have used larger racial preferences at the University of Michigan than they had before they were struck down. This doesn't seem to us to be consistent with the spirit of the Supreme Court decision, and the same has happened at a lot of other places. Uh, the evidence suggests that large racial preferences, the norm is a racial gap of 200 to 400 SAT points, equivalent gaps in GPA between the mean scores of black and white students at most selective schools. Uh, Another principle stated in Grutter was it's unconstitutional to use racial preferences to the extent that of do, unduly harming members of any racial group. That's a quote, unduly harming members of any racial group. We argue, and we think the evidence shows, that preferences as they use in Texas unduly harm members of every racial group. They unduly harm the Asians, primarily, first and foremost, who are excluded, and the whites who are excluded, like Abby Fisher, uh, because of their race, who might otherwise have been admitted. We think they do worse harm to black and Hispanic students who are misled into thinking they are well qualified to have strong academic records at the University of Texas and who get there and find out that they're not going to have outstanding academic records. They'll be lucky to graduate. If so, they're likely to be at the bottom of their class. I'm not talking about black and Hispanic students per se. The top student in the class might be black or Hispanic, but students of any race, and this is usually a black and Hispanic preference, who are admitted based on large preferences are not likely to do well. This is concealed from them. One minute. Um, what does this have to do with uh, our research? 
the remedy we think that the court should adopt to cure the problems abby fisher complains of is not to ban racial preferences roger clegg i think will make a strong case for doing that our favorite remedy would be total transparency full disclosure of how this system works of how large the racial gaps are and of how people fare who are admitted with large racial groups that's number one it's sort of a consumer protection measure so that minority students will know what they're getting into and it's also you can't make intelligent public policy about matters that are kept secret as to how they work the second would be no racial preferences can be larger than whatever socioeconomic preferences the same school has for example it is now routine for the children of black doctors and lawyers or hispanic doctors and lawyers to be admitted ahead of better qualified children of white plumbers cab drivers asian seamstresses middle working class people so this system operates contrary to economic egalitarianism it's making economic inequality in america worse not better and i'd better stop before roger gives me the hook thanks Well, thank you, Stuart. And as you could see from the conclusion of the book that he just stated, um, these two folks over here would never be confused as card-carrying conservatives or libertarians. In fact, anything but that for um, for um, Rick Sander, based obviously on the intro that I read. Stuart, on the other hand, would certainly pass as a card-carrying moderate. <laughs> I've never, never uh, found any issue on which he couldn't say on the one hand and then on the other hand. <laughs> In any event, we're now going to hear from uh, two um, critics from either side on both the book and the, um, the case, uh, first from Roger Clegg and then from Alan Morrison. Um, Roger Clegg is president and general counsel uh, of the Center for Equal Opportunity, he focuses on legal issues arising from civil rights laws, including the regulatory impact on business and the problems in higher education created by affirmative action. A former deputy assistant attorney general in the Reagan and Bush administrations, uh, Clegg held the second highest positions in both the civil rights division and the environment and natural resources division. He's held several other positions in the Justice Department, including assistant to the Solicitor General, Associate Deputy Attorney General, and Acting Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Policy. He's a graduate of Yale Law School. Please welcome Roger Clegg. Thank you very much, Roger, for that, uh, that nice introduction and for inviting me today. Thank you to the Cato Institute, and, and thank you to Rick Sander and, and Stuart Taylor for writing this, uh, this wonderful book. Um, I'm going to begin by heaping praise on, uh, on, on Rick and Stuart for this book. It's terrific. Um, makes an extremely important contribution to, to the debate on these issues. Um, I think an un- unprecedented uh, contribution in many ways. Uh, uh, I've read the book, and it's, uh, it, it's very readable. It's got lots of charts and diagrams, for those of you who, who like that sort of thing. Um, and it's, uh, it's very well written. Um, uh, everybody should buy multiple copies. And 
Give them to friends and family, people you know, people you don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, really, it's, just, it's a terrific book. And I should also say something uh, about what uh, terrific people the, the authors are. Um, you know, you've know, you got to be smart to write a really good book, but um, this area, you also have to be brave. Um, and particularly, I think more so for them to write a book like this than for me, um, I have few friends anyway, and, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't, you know, pal around with, you know, reporters and academics and people like that uh, very much. Um, Rick is an academic. Um, Stuart does pal around with, uh, you know, with reporters. Uh, the, these people uh, frequently take it personally when you start attacking politically correct things like racial preferences. So, I mean, I'm, I'm being, you know, a little bit uh, humorous about this, but it, but it is true. I mean, you know, uh, you put your career on the line um, when, you, when you say stuff like what's said in this book. And so uh, it's not only a, a, a great book, it's a, it's a very brave book. <clears throat> However, um, nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and they're not perfect, and, and, and the book is not perfect. And the main reason it's not perfect is because it doesn't quite call for the abolition of, of racial preferences and, uh, in, in university admissions. And uh, it should have, and someday they will. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to, in the balance of my time, explain you know, why the Supreme Court should do this in the, uh, in the Fisher case. Um, I'm going to begin by reading the text of the law in this area, which is probably not going to be done tomorrow because it would be very embarrassing to the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, let me read to you Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Not all of it, just the relevant part here. Um, although I say there's only one ellipsis in this, so I'm not picking and choosing. Quote, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, dot, 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 be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That's what happened to Abigail Fisher. It's not disputed. She was treated differently because of her race, color, and national origin. Now, we're not going to be talking so much about Title VI tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the Constitution, and that's because in the Bakke case, the Supreme Court said that, well, that doesn't really mean what it says. You know, it's we think that it just means what the Constitution means. And the Constitution is, um, you know, has a little more wiggle room, although not a lot. The Constitution guarantees the, quote, equal protection of the laws, uh, and it outlawed, I mean, the whole purpose of it, of the equal protection, uh, or the um, 14th Amendment, was to outlaw racially separate legal standards. That seems pretty straightforward, too. And, you know, there, there are other, there's another federal statute, um, 42 U.S.C. section 1981 that banned racial discrimination in the making of contracts. And the court has made clear that that includes college tuition. So it ought to be, you know, fairly straightforward. But the Supreme Court has said that, to say that, you know, those words really don't mean what they say. Um, there's not a categorical ban. And that uh, there is an exception in this area. Um, and you would think, well, gee, you know, if the, if the Supreme Court is going to carve out an exception 
you know, to the, to the principle of racial discrimination that's, you know, pretty clearly there in the law. You know, the political branches have spoken to this. Um, it must be pretty, pretty strong and undeniable. You know, it must be something like, uh, you know, it helps us identify somebody that's about to set off a nuclear bomb in the middle of New York City or something like that, you know, for it to be, you know, really compelling. Well, um, you know, the argument is that if you use racial discrimination in college admissions, um, it's likely that there will be somewhat more of uh, unrehearsed um, interracial conversations among students and that the African-American kids and the Latino kids, you know, who get these preferences are going to say something to the white kids and the Asian kids that is, just has overwhelming, compelling educational benefits for them. That's it. That is what the University of Texas is arguing. That is the exception to the principle of non-discrimination that the Supreme Court has recognized. Okay? Now, I think that's ridiculous. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, the, the, the reason the court, you know, buys this is because there are social scientists out there who, who say, you know, that's true, it's true, it really happens. Um, now, increasingly, uh, these, these educational benefits, which, you know, make only marginal improvements to education, you know, at best, um, are disputed. You know, it is, it is increasingly disputed that there, that there are any educational benefits. But I think it's also important for the court to, to bear in mind, and I think the court's jurisprudence is moving this way, that even if there are some educational benefits, they've got to be weighed against the costs that are inherent in engaging in this discrimination, right? I mean, if something is compelling, Something, if, if, if an interest is compelling, you've got to consider the inherent liabilities in the racial discrimination that it involves too, right? Well, what are some of the costs of racial discrimination in university admissions? Well, this is, I, I should know this by heart, but I don't, but this is my little litany that I post on, uh, you know, comment sections on, uh, Websites all the time. Here, here it is. Costs of racial discrimination in admissions. It is personally unfair. Passes over better qualified students and sets a disturbing legal, political, and moral precedent in allowing racial discrimination. It creates resentment. It stigmatizes the so-called beneficiaries in the eyes of their classmates, teachers, and themselves, as well as future employers, clients, and patients. It fosters a victim mindset, removes the incentive for academic excellence, and encourages separatism. It compromises the academic mission of the university and lowers the overall academic quality of the student body. It creates pressure to discriminate in grading and graduation. 
it breeds hypocrisy within the school and encourages a scofflaw attitude among college officials. It papers over the real social problem of why so many African Americans and Latinos are academically uncompetitive. And it gets states and schools involved in unsavory activities like deciding which racial and ethnic minorities will be favored and which ones not, and how much blood is needed to establish group membership. And I didn't even mention mismatch. <laughs> in this matchbook, in addition to giving chapter and verse and, and um, um, ample, uh, irrefutable um, documentation for why this is a real problem, uh, also touches on some of these other problems that I've listed too. You add all those up, okay, and it seems to me that it's a lot stronger. <clears throat> than these, the educational benefits from these random interracial conversations that we might be having more of if we use racial preferences in admissions. Okay, well let me um, wrap up with um, one sort of happy note in, in Dom, but then one not so happy note. Um, it seems to me and I think it ought to seem to the justices that one reason why we ought to end this nonsense now is because of the changing face of America, all right? 40 or 50 years ago, it was basically, it was predominantly a black and white country, and you had a lot of people who had only recently been discriminated against, you know, had only recently been um, living under a Jim Crow system. Okay. Now we're talking about the people who get preferences now were born in 1994. That doesn't seem like very long ago to somebody you know my age. All right. 1994. Um, so that's you know 30 years after the 1964 <coughs> Civil Rights Act. <coughs> According to the latest census, one in four Americans now describe themselves as being something other than white. African Americans are not the largest minority group anymore. They haven't been for a while. Latinos are a larger minority group than African Americans are. And neither one of them is the fastest growing racial minority group. The fastest growing racial minority group is Asian Americans. Um, African Americans are growing at only a 12.3% rate. White Americans are growing at only a 5.7% rate. Um, another rapidly growing group are people like our president uh, who could check more than one box in the race and ethnicity section of their, their questionnaire. It seems to me, and I think it ought to seem to the Supreme Court, that in a country like that, we cannot have a legal regime that sorts people according to their skin color and what country their ancestors came from and treats some people better and other people worse based on which silly little box they check. Okay. Now, frequently the people who are arguing in favor, I mean, I debate this issue all the time. Let me tell you, um, two minutes into the debate, we're not talking about the educational benefits of interracial conversations, right? We're talking about slavery. Um, and we're talking about racial disparities. And that's the only justification that anybody really believes in. You know, they don't, 
you know, even the academics don't really believe that there are these compelling interests from these interracial you know, conversations. I mean, they may think they're important, but they don't really, that's not really their justification. So why do we have these racial disparities? You know, isn't it all because of slavery? Well, last week, the, the um, federal government, as it does, you know, once or twice a year, came out with its latest figures on uh, birth rates. And in particular, on uh, uh, what I'm going to point to uh, is the uh, illegitimacy rates, or out-of-wedlock births, okay? Here they are. 72.3% of African Americans now are born out of wedlock. 72.3%. American Indians, 66.2%. Latinos, it's 53.3%. For whites, still pretty high, but it's 29.1%. And for Asians, it's 17.2%. So in other words, 7 out of 10, 6 out of 10, 5 out of 10 for blacks, American Indians, and Latinos. These are the so-called underrepresented minorities that get racial preferences. Uh, and then fewer than 3 out of 10 and fewer than 2 out of 10 for whites and Asians, the people who are typically discriminated against. You know, it is no accident that these figures line up quite well with how well different groups are doing, uh, not only in terms of, of um, education, but in terms of crime and, you know, whatever social indicator you want. You know, that is the real problem. And, of course, that is not going to be fixed by racial preferences in university admissions. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Now we're going to hear from Alan Morrison, uh, who is the Lerner Family Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service Law at the George Washington University School of Law. He's responsible for creating pro bono opportunities for students, bringing a wide range of public interest programs to the law school, encouraging students to seek positions in the nonprofit and government sectors, and assisting students to find ways to fund their legal education to make it possible for them to pursue careers outside of traditional law firms. Uh, for most of his career, Dean Morrison worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. His work involved law reform litigation in various areas, including open government, opening up the legal profession, suing agencies that fail to comply with the law, enforcing principles of separation of powers, protecting the rights of consumers, and protecting unrepresented class members in class action settlements. He's argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court, including victories in Virginia State Board of Pharmacy of Virginia Citizens Consumer Council, making commercial speech subject to the First Amendment. Thank you. Uh, and in INS v. Chata, striking down over 200 federal laws containing the legislative veto as a violation of separation of powers. Uh, he has previously taught at Harvard, NYU, Stanford, Hawaii, and American University Law Schools. He's a member of the Academy, American Academy of Appellate Lawyers and was his president from 1999 to 2000. He's a graduate of Yale University and the Harvard Law School, served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy, and was an assistant U.S. attorney in New York. Please welcome Alan Morrison. Thank 
Mr. Roger, I also have the distinction of two things. One, I read and commented on Stuart and Rick's book. Uh, I don't want to get any Medal of Honor for that. Uh, my name is in the acknowledgments. I found it today, so nobody's come after me yet. Uh, and if you think it's incendiary now, you should have read the draft I read. <laughs> uh, second, I'm also one of the few lawyers who practices regularly before the Supreme Court who did not file a brief in the Fisher case. <laughs> okay, so let's begin by remembering that Fisher is a concrete lawsuit and not an academic debate about the values of affirmative action. Uh, the question in this case is, did the University of Texas violate the Equal Protection Clause in connection with its undergraduate admission program? And did Abigail Fisher, was she injured by what the University of Texas did? So I want to start by explaining a little more than Stuart did about the admissions program and what it's supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do and what it does and doesn't do. So we have the top 10%. Uh, this guarantees anyone who graduates in the top 10% of their high school class in Texas admission to the University of Texas. It does not get you into your preferred academic program. So if you want to be in business uh, and that's filled up, you guarantee to get into something, but not necessarily into business. It has some clear limits. First, it only applies to graduates of, tech, of high schools in Texas. Uh, so you can't get anybody out of state that way. <clears throat> Second, only applies if the school ranks individuals. And it turns out that in Texas and many other places, for academic reasons, uh, schools do not rank individuals uh, because they think it's bad pedagogically and they, they think it's ultra-competitive. Uh, those students cannot get in under the top 10 preference. Third, uh, it only deals with brains and not brawn. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily get any athletes, any musicians, or any other people uh, besides those who score the highest on their SATs. SATs are interesting, but they are not probably ought not to be the only criteria, or at least that's what the University of Texas thinks for admitting people to their undergraduate program. Uh, it cannot work for national universities uh, because there's no way you could have top 10% or 2% or any percent around the country admitting them. It only works for a, single, a largely single state university nor can it work for graduate schools. Uh, there simply aren't enough schools that would feed it, even in a place like Texas, uh, to get it into the uh, University of Texas graduate program in law or anything else. It works principally because in Texas, and the legislature was perfectly aware of this, indeed many people think it was the reason why they did it, is in Texas there's highly segregated high schools based on residential patterns of racial segregation, not required, but economically largely or social. So the blacks have their high schools, the Hispanics have their high schools, and largely white high schools. Not completely, but very largely done that way. And that's the way they were able to get some significant racial diversity in the entering class uh, by using the top uh, 10%. The University of Texas then decided to do something more than that. Uh, they concluded after a period of study uh, that they did not have sufficient diversity within racial groups or they had insufficient numbers of racial groups, racial uh, minorities in, in the school. So they went to what they called the holistic approach. Uh, that's not my title. I can't be blamed for adopting it. Uh, so Stuart can't pick on me uh, for that. Uh, there are two axes, as Stuart said. Down one axis is the academic achievement index. And 
That is a combination of your grade point average and your SAT. And there are boxes, like the boxes here. They're down one axis this, this way. And then there are another index, which is the, uh, and that consists of a single number when you get that score. Race is not involved in that at all. Then there's what's called the personal achievement uh, index. There are six factors coming to a total of six points. Race is not a specific factor, although it is recognized to be included within one factor, the factor called special circumstances. Those factors are combined in a single number. It is my understanding you don't get an, a, a, a point for each of the factors, so the things like leadership, athletic ability, music, and other things like that all of which go into the into the into the these circumstances. Uh, you get a number, uh, a total number at the end, and then the numbers at the bottom are go across this way. The numbers go up this way, and at the intersection of the number here with the number there, you get a box, and everybody in that box gets admitted or gets denied based upon the number of people that they need for admission to the undergraduate program. So there is no specific reference to race. In the final determination, there is no quota, there is no goal, uh, other than the general goal of increasing the number of Hispanics and African Americans, and some desire to increase the number in particular classes and programs as well, the so-called critical mass they wanted to talk about. It turns out that between 60 and 80 percent, depending upon the year, are admitted in the top 10 percent. Uh, and different numbers, uh, obviously, uh, in the holistic approach for those other years. In addition, 90% of the students who actually attend the university, and one of the difficulties with the statistics in this is between those who get admitted and those who actually attend, and so you, you have to be a little careful with your numbers. But 90% of the people who attend are from the state of Texas, which means it's very difficult to get people in from out of state if you use the 10% only. Um, there's no question that the goal is to bring in more minorities and more diverse minorities. The University of Texas believes that it does this, but it's impossible to determine exactly who is preferred and by how much uh, because race is admittedly part of it, but only one part. Uh, but even if there are very large numbers, even, sorry, they have very large impact on who gets admitted, the numbers of actual additional African Americans and Hispanics is really quite small. And this is one of the strange things about this case. The defendants say, well, the, price, uh, the preference isn't very much. We go from, and these are approximate numbers, from 3% African Americans in the top 10% to 4 and a quarter percent uh, with, the, with the holistic uh, approach. Uh, and uh, they say, really, if it's a preference, it's a very slight preference. The plaintiff says, on the other hand, no, wait a second. If it's a slight preference, if it doesn't help very much, then it can't be very important. So both sides are arguing the same thing, that it's not very significant in terms of the numbers. One says that's proof that it's not important. The other one says that's proof that it's not very much harm. And it's kind of an irony. And I don't know what the court is going to do about it if it actually figures out that that's what the two sides are, are, are saying. By the way, I should make this point because I'll make it rather than making it later. The case by the two parties is being argued on a very narrow ground. That is, both of them are accepting Grutter and saying, we comply with it or no, you don't comply with it. Uh, the amici, 
uh, particularly on, on the plaintiff's side, are arguing much more broadly for an end to, to, to use of diversity at all. Uh, and so it'll be quite interesting to see what the court uh, does uh, with that. My own view is that the plaintiff has the burden of showing that, it ha that the racial factor had a significant influencing effect on the program in general, and, and even though there are no goals, quotas, uh, or, or, uh, or specifics about it, uh, that the plaintiff has the burden of showing a significant impact. Uh, and more importantly, uh, and this I want to make a couple of additional points, there's no question that if Miss Fisher had gotten a six, which is the highest score down here, her academic achievement index would not have been high enough to put her in a box that would have got her admitted. And the argument that the state makes is that you weren't harmed by this because you would not have got admitted under our system this way. The difficulty is, of course, is that you can't tell how much help anyone else got as a result of the system because there's no actual scoring based upon, upon uh, race. And indeed, if they did that, they might run afoul of the Michigan problem of having specific goals or quotas or assigned numbers to it, which creates another kind of irony. It is possible that Ms. Fisher might have been admitted in a summer program that, under which Texas admits a number of people who are not admitted in the regular program. It's not clear to me, and maybe it is to anybody else, whether she actually tried to get into that program. In any event, she was not admitted there. And so one of the arguments that, that is being made is uh, it, it's impossible to reconstruct what would have happened, uh, and that maybe this is a lawsuit which could prevent the University of Texas from going forward with its program in the future. The problem from Ms. Fisher's perspective is she has already completed the university. This is not a class action, and she has not sought an injunction against the future use of the program because she would have no standing and not be entitled to ask for it. The only thing she is seeking at this time is monetary damages. The one item of damages she has claimed, as far as I am aware, is that she paid an application fee of, I think, $100 in any event. It's something in that range. And she wants that fee back. Uh, not at all clear, A, she's entitled to it back and under any circumstances. B, this is the University of Texas, and there's this thing called the 11th Amendment, which I don't like very much, but it's out there, and it prevents people from getting money back from states unless the state has clearly waived its right to, do, to, to, to uh, engage in the activity. Not at all clear that they would meet that test uh, here as well. She, her lawyers claim that there are other damages, emotional damages, not at all clear that she's entitled to them. It's a case called Washington v. Davis, which says when you're violating the Constitution, you're seeking damages, you have to show intentional violations. It's going to be pretty hard to show that's here at all. The irony of this is it's not something that somebody thought up at the end as a means of getting out. These problems were all presented to the Supreme Court at the certiorari stage. They sat on the case for three or four conferences before deciding to take the case. And when they took it, only eight justices acted on the order because Justice Kagan was the Solicitor General when the government filed an amicus brief in support of the University of Texas in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So she is not sitting on this case. And so we have only four, uh, eight, eight, excuse me, eight justices uh, on, on the case. Uh, and the potential for a 4-4 tie is, is certainly there. 
despite these problems and despite the fact that Ms. Fisher has dubious remedies, even if she could prove that she was harmed and that the system is unconstitutional, the court nevertheless uh, uh, took, took the, the case. Uh, some of the briefs have pointed out that among other minorities, the Asians are discriminated against. And of course, it's historically true that the Chinese and, uh, and the Japanese were discriminated against for long periods of time in, in our history. Uh, if you are interested in the data, and I don't know what they prove, you might as well have them. Uh, in Texas, there are about 3% of the population is Asian American. Uh, by the way, there's another problem with, it, with, it, with all of these numbers, and that is, do you use the overall percentage in the population? Do you use high school graduates or do you use high school graduates who are able to go to some college at all or maybe uh, elite colleges like the University of Texas? But leaving those numbers aside for a second, there are 3% Asians in, in the population of Texas. They constitute 16% of the entering class, and 61% of all Asians who apply to the University of Texas uh, get admitted, obviously a much higher percentage than everybody else. So let me make a couple uh, points. Uh, uh, in, in some ways, they're most significant. Um, and the first is that the Supreme Court has accepted, uh, <clears throat> despite what Roger Clegg has said, that diversity is a sufficient rationale for uh, universities to attempt to include more minorities in their entering class. Uh, I think that universities should be able to decide how they want to structure their entering class, and that academic achievement alone does not and should not be the only criteria that universities can take into account. After all, I assume most people would think that they're entitled to admit athletes, musicians, uh, other people who have talents in other areas of law. Uh, I, I would wager that many people in this room would think that legacies uh, are a proper consideration to some degree at university admission, although many of us would think that they are overused as our athletics in admission. But if we are allowing universities to have some leeway, then the question is, not whether diversity can be used at all, but whether the University of Texas went too far. And this is where the problem is for the plaintiffs. Because the plaintiff says, Texas can't do this. And you say to them, OK, if you accept diversity as a rationale, what is it that Texas can do besides the top 10%, which the university says is not adequate for the reasons I gave earlier, if they want to increase the number of African-Americans and Hispanics without going to a quota system? Well, the easy answer is just disregard race entirely. But think about that for a second. You are now an admissions officer, and you have a personal essay in front of you by the student. The student says, I was a member of the Black Students Association. I grew up in a ghetto. I, su I subjected myself to this kind of thing. I was arrested by the police because I was black. And, and I decided that what I really needed to do was to get an education and become a lawyer. Can anybody expect any reader to strike the fact about being African American from that essay? Are we going to have somebody go through and edit every essay to be sure there is no indication of the race of that individual? And are we going to do some kind of mind experiment on the readers to see that they don't even think about race? That's the problem that the University of Texas has. Last thing I want to say is, despite the fact that this is a very narrow case, 
in many respects. The Supreme Court has shown that it is supremely able to disregard the wishes of the litigants and to go as broadly as they want, and I give you Citizens United for an example. Thank you very much. I wondered if there was some way we would get Citizens United into this discussion. <laughs> A day without Citizens United, dot, dot, dot. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. All right, we're going to take just very quick comments back and forth before we open it up to the floor. Uh, Rick? Mine will be quick and neat because I actually have to leave in about eight minutes. But, oh, okay. Um, uh, I, you know, I, three very quick points. The, the, the reason why we need transparency is because we need to have better facts. I mean, if you, if you listen to Alan and you listen to, to Roger Clegg, it sounds like they're talking about completely different universes, right? And to some extent they are because because so much of the dialogue about affirmative action in America is just based on selected facts disclosed by selected parts of the system. And the, the proportion of the relevant information that's out there is, is maybe one per hundred. Um, so transparency is, is a good way to, to move the system forward, whatever you believe about, about preferences, I think. Um, secondly, when you look at the actual operation of preferences, uh, the, the, the holistic idea really is complete bunk. We're not talking about looking at an individual essay and saying, well, this student's race really shaped their life experiences in a profound way. We're looking at systems where you, you rank students by, by academic criteria, and there's a whole cadre of students of a particular race who are not eligible unless they're of that specific race, and then you admit every one of those students. Um, it's not a discretionary use of race. That's what Justice O'Connor was trying to unsuccessfully put forward in, in Grutter and, and what a lot of people are sympathetic to. It's a mechanical 100% application of race. And the other problem with Alan's, Alan's analogy is that you're not looking at people who grew up in ghettos. You're not looking at people who have been arrested by the police. The vast majority of African Americans receiving preferences at, to selective institutions come from upper middle class or wealthy backgrounds. That's simply a fact. And so the preference systems are not getting the diversity that we want. They're getting a diversity that feels good, that seems to give sort of an aura of legitimacy to the university, but not one that even has the potential to change people's educational experiences. Stuart. Um, <clears throat> I agree with a great deal of what Alan said. I think if there's a disagreement, it's over his apparent view that it would be improper for the court to sort of reach out in this case, in which the standing is kind of shaky and there are lots of reasons to think, well, they don't need to decide anything big in this case. They can just, you know, decide it without disturbing anything anywhere else. And they could, that's true. And uh, a while ago I might have said, yeah, they shouldn't. But that's what the Supreme Court does. They reached out in Citizens United to decide issues that they didn't have to decide. They reached out in Roe versus Wade. They reached out in Lawrence versus Texas, the gay rights case. They reached out in Roper versus Simmons, the juvenile death penalty case. The people who don't want them to reach out in this case, many of them, do want them to reach out anytime it helps their cause. And maybe they even reached out in the Chada case, uh, uh, which is Allen's case. Um, and my point there is, the court shouldn't just make things up out of whole cloth, but they are to a large extent a policy-making body. 
uh, it's evolved that way. That's what they do. They take cases and they, they decide broader principles under those cases. And here we have a very serious problem that I think justifies a little stretching, not in my opinion to ban racial preferences, but to impose the kind of remedies we suggest, transparency and a socioeconomic component, because as our book details, Every other institution in American society has failed to come to grips with this problem. The universities systematically mislead applicants and the rest of the country over how it works. The politicians are terrified of it. No major politician has attacked affirmative action publicly in about 20 years. Not 20, maybe 16 years. And this is not going to change. We're going to have racial preferences for the next 100 years or more unless the Supreme Court does something to slow it down. The non-political branch, a policy-making body. <laughs> Say it ain't so. Uh, brief comments, Roger and Ellen. Well, I'm going to limit my comments to, to what um, Alan said, because he spoke after me and I spoke after uh, Rick and, uh, and Stuart. Um, you know, on the justiciability issues, um, I think that, you know, whether... Abigail Thernstrom, or Abigail, Abigail Fisher would have gotten in, or Abigail Thernstrom. Um, I think that the, uh, the huge gaps in SAT scores that um, uh, Stuart and Rick were talking about are, are relevant. And I think it's significant that the, the parties have basically, uh, you know, Texas has now in the merits, at the merits stage, relegated its standing argument to, you know, to a footnote. So I, I think the court is going to decide the case. On, Everything else that um, Alan said, um, you know, most of it I do not agree with. Uh, and I think it's instructive you know, to, to put the shoe on the other foot uh, for a lot, of, a lot of these arguments. I mean, for instance, you know, he says, well, you know, um, Asians make up only, what, 3% or something in, in, uh, of the general population in Texas, and you know, their percentage in the student body is way above that. Well, you, know, you could have said the same thing about Jews in the Ivy League. Um, you know, 50 or uh, 75 years ago. Um, that doesn't mean that Jews weren't being discriminated against. Uh, and that was no justification for the anti-Jewish quotas that the, that the Ivy League had. Um, he says that, well, you know, uh, there are all kinds of things that are weighed in addition to, you know, academic achievement. Well, nobody up here is saying that academic achievement ought to be the only thing that's looked at. I am happy for Texas to give scholarships, you know, for you know, quarterbacks and, and tuba players and, and rich alumni and all, all that other kind of stuff. Well, not rich alumni so much, but anyway. Um, uh, the, the question, though, is whether they ought to be discriminating against people on the basis of race, okay? That's different. It's different as a legal matter. It's different as a historical matter. It's different as a moral matter. Um, yeah, we ought to defer to schools. Um, uh, in general when it comes to structuring their classes, but not when it comes to racial discrimination. Now, I'm sure that Allen would not have been okay with deferring to Ole Miss uh, 50 or 60 years ago uh, when it was weighing race and deciding who to get admitted, and I don't think that we ought to defer to the University of Texas now when it wants to weigh race and, and who gets admitted. Ellen? So let me talk about the one thing I didn't get a chance to talk about, which is it, it's quite perplexing to me. Uh, there are, I don't know how many studies, scores and scores of studies. Uh, many of them, if you read the reports of them in the briefs, 
completely contradictory one another. One says the study says this, and one of them says that. One says this study proves this, and one says no, this study proves that. None of these were the subject of trial-type proceedings in the district court. Um, and my question, and I don't know what the answer is, what is the Supreme Court supposed to do with all this? And indeed, what are they supposed to do with Stewart's, uh, uh, Rick's very fine book that has a lot of studies, which if you read a bunch of other briefs, they say, no, those studies are wrong, they're invalid, and so forth. How is the Supreme Court supposed to deal with that problem? Should the Supreme Court be deciding based on a bunch of studies, no matter who did them and on which side, in which they appear to be contradictory without having a trial-type proceeding? Or at least having a legislative proceeding in which the legislature could sit down and say, we've actually thought about this and considered this. Or even, perhaps, if the University of Texas was presented with these studies and sat down to make a conscious decision. Um, I do agree with Stuart that transparency is a very important aspect to it. And to the extent that some of these programs, and I'm not identifying anyone in particular, have the facts have been known, it's only been known as a result of discovery and litigation. It has always seemed to me that if you can't tell people about a wonderful program that you're doing because you've kept a secret of all the details, then maybe the program isn't quite so wonderful as you think it is. Now, having said that, it's unclear how the Supreme Court would order transparency as a remedy for Ms. Fisher, who was only asking for money for not getting admitted to court. But I leave that conundrum to the rest all of you. All right, well, let's now have a few questions from the audience. Please wait till the microphone gets to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. This uh, woman right here on the end. Thank you. Uh, Peggy Orchowski, I'm the Congressional Correspondent for the Hispanic Outlook on Higher Education. And um, I've covered Hispanics for years, and I, one thing I love about covering them is they're so diverse. And even the census recognized they're not a race. So why are Hispanics been involved in this? And as we see in our colleges, more and more kids now checking off you know, multi-race or can't be distinguished as race. Why is race even a factor anymore? Okay. Is that directed to any particular person here? Why is race, no. why are Hispanics be considered no. a race? Oh, okay, Stuart, do you wanna? Yeah, I'll take a cut at it. I think it began very early in the late 60s when racial preferences, affirmative action first started being used. They were quickly extended to Hispanics. And I think the logic at the time was that although Hispanics didn't have a legacy of slavery, like blacks, they tended to be on the lower end of the population socioeconomically. They were people who needed a leg up. Uh, they needed a break. That was the idea. It's good question. I think maybe it should have been just poor why people. Why not just treat, why not just have a yeah. preference for poor but people? But I'm trying to give a diagnosis as opposed to a prescription. The rest of the diagnosis is now it's political. Hispanics are a very powerful voting block and growing, especially in California, especially in Texas. And that's one reason why what we have, which began as a kind of an egalitarian thing, is evolved into a racial spoils system where the people who benefit are often more affluent than, well, than the people who don't. I stop myself on benefit. Of course, our point is sometimes they're being harmed. Uh, this gentleman right here had a, a question. I kind of want to ask a question. Uh, identify yourself, please. Um, my name is Stephen Hank, and I have no affiliation. I'm just retired. 
come to Cato events all the time. Uh, I want to ask a question that you probably might consider outside the box, but everything, everything that you're both, you're all saying sort of assumes that there should be criterion of some type administered by the university, whether it's academic achievement. And I'd like to throw out to you why the, the idea that every other service that's provided in our society is divvied up by price. And therefore, the, when the people who most need it, um, who most need it, will determine that they're willing to pay the, the price for the best education. And in fact, a lot of times you have really brilliant people who have no need to go to university, and they're going to get very little out of, out of things. And it may be the weakest student that may get the best, the most out of the education. My question to you is, why is this absent in any discussion, what I've just said, of, uh, of affirmative action or of education? And it, it's pretty clear that the customers in, the, in this situation are really not customers. They're beneficiaries more than their customers. Okay, that, that probably that should be directed to Alan, who's the only remaining academic up here. Do you get your money's worth out of higher education today, Alan? Oh, if they come to my classes, they definitely oh, do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I think that in the United States today, to move ahead, you have to have a college degree. And many people who would be able to enter college and succeed in college don't have the money uh, to pay for it. And I, for one, would not like to see a university system that was treated like the marketplace. Uh, oh, no. my, my Very quick. You could still have a program, a uh, government program, that gives money to people who are poor to go th so they could go to college, but it doesn't have to have anything to do with as being a, uh, the cri changing the criterion or, or from I, price. I, I, I guess I don't understand your system. We may have to take it up some other time. This, uh, there was a lady right back uh, there who has her hand up. Uh, yes. Hi. My name is Kim Humphrey. I am a recent graduate from Catholic Law and um, a policy uh, assistant. Hold the microphone close, please. A policy assistant at the ACLU. Um, and I, I just want to first address a, a few fallacies, I, I guess. Um, just the assumption that um, anyone who's in the middle class may have not been arrested or um, may have ha not had any issues related to race. I, I just think that plays an important um, part in the conversation. Also, the point about um, STEM graduates, I think they're down generally across the board, um, regardless of race. Um, and then, so then I guess my point is, um, why aren't preferences of any kind, like I would think that they would need to be as trans transparent. So it's, it's, I guess it's the question like the others are saying, like why is race the only issue in preferences that that is the biggest? Well, I, I, I would certainly support transparency and athletic scholarships, legacies, and anything else that somebody could identify as a significant factor that at least is a sub ought to be a subject of debate. That is, 
one could be for or against athletic scholarships, but we at least ought to know how the people are doing, what are, how long are they staying at school, what kind of, what degree of preference are we, are we giving, and I think that a state university should be required to divulge all those things, as well as things about legacies as well. But doesn't that just raise the, the issue, Alan, that uh, athletic scholarships are based on ability? Presumably, academic admission is also based on ability, but when you throw in race or other uh, irrelevant criteria to ability, then you raise the question. Well, the university defends it on the grounds that their ability to bring different viewpoints to the university. You may not accept that, uh, but moreover, uh, I think the question in all of these things is not whether you can take a factor into account. If it's a subject of public debate, take, take the legacy question. The question is how much, not whether there should be any benefit, but how much it is. And if you don't know the extent of the preferences, it seems to me the public can't have an intelligent debate about it. I don't think there's any problem with, with transparency. I mean, I agree with, with Alan on, on that. But I do think that we've got to keep in mind that race is special. You know, treating people differently because of race is something that is uniquely ugly. It's there in the law that you're not supposed to do it. Uh, I think we had a civil war that had something to do with that. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why it's different. And, you know, one point I wanted to make when, when Alan was talking before about, well, you know, you have social scientists that say this and you have social scientists that say that. He's exactly right. And I think that that, it, it is, ridiculous that the Supreme Court has carved an exception out of the Equal Protection Clause that depends on social science evidence. Uh, and I think if the social science evidence is indeterminate, which it is, uh, then we shouldn't be discriminating against people on the basis of race. Roger, uh, could I? Qu uh, Stuart, quick, quick, quick point on STEM grads. Our point on STEM grads isn't that we need more of them. Maybe we do. Our point is that when students, black or Hispanic students, go to college wanting to be STEM majors, they should not be misled to go to colleges where they have very little chance of becoming STEM majors. Okay, the gentleman up here in the blue shirt. Greg Squires from George Washington University and previous board member of the Woodstock Institute where Mr. Sanders is at for a while. I have a simple question for Roger Clegg. You gave us some numbers on the percentage of people born out of wedlock of various groups. What do you think accounts for those patterns? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I think doesn't account for it. Um, uh, I don't think that you, could, that you can say that, well, this is because of, you know, these are the wages of discrimination and slavery. Because these numbers have been getting worse over time. Um, you know, rather than better. I mean, you would think that if this was a, a result of discrimination and slavery, it would have been worse during the Jim Crow era. It would have been even worse than that when you go back towards slavery. I think that this is a, uh, uh, there, there are complicated social causes for this. Um, I think that, you know, the Great Society, I think that the way that the welfare system worked for years, uh, it's, it's, it's cultural. Um, and, uh, and I think it's also, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, has a lot to do with, with morality and religion and, and the, the fact that um, the, the, the forces, uh, that it's, it's become more and more acceptable in our society to have children out of wedlock, and in particular uh, in the African-American community, and it's, it's too bad. And the, the, if social science does show anything, it is the correlation between intact two-parent families 
and uh, and achievement is absolutely and you know th that was also politically incorrect to say for a long time I mean that's the reason you know when Daniel Patrick Moynihan pointed out this problem in the 1960s uh, he got such a firestorm of criticism that he stopped you know brave a man as Daniel Patrick Moynihan was he had nothing to do with this issue for the rest of his career um, but now it's becoming I think increasingly uh, recognized on both sides of the aisle that as Roger says um, you know, you name the social pathology, whether it's dropping out of school, uh, getting into trouble with the law, you know, whatever, um, and there is a strong correlation between it and growing up in, in a home without a father, particularly for boys. Uh, this gentleman right here, we're going to have to draw this to a close in just a couple of minutes. This will be our next to last question. I'm sorry. Uh, my name is John Rosenberg. Um, I'm a lapsed historian. I've been writing a blog on discrimination for longer than I can now remember. Um, I have a, a question mainly for mainly for Stuart. He, he's heard this from me before, so it won't be <laughs> it, it won't be a surprise really. Um, I, I thought the book itself was was magisterial, really incomparable, um, until it got to the end where it didn't call for an, an end to uh, to preferences based on race. Uh, one of the strongest reasons given in the book for not calling for uh, banning race preferences, in effect, it seems to me like just a heckler's veto. Well, they'll never obey it. They'll never go along with it. And so we can't really, we can't really get rid of race preferences because they, they want to do it too much. Uh, I grew up in a state where the governor stood in the schoolhouse door, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really uh, moved by, by that argument very much. But I want to ask you kind of a, a narrower but very specific question. Uh, <coughs> the things that two of you proposed at the end of the book to come up with kind of a middle way between uh, abolishing uh, preferences and keeping them, your, your middle way had, had three points, transparency, which we've talked about a lot, uh, trying to cap preferences by limiting them to the number of, limiting to the same size of socioeconomic status preferences. But the third one to me was the most interesting one, which is you want to outlaw uh, any financial aid based on race. And the argument there is, well, why? That is, would you come, could you give me an example of a legal argument, not a policy argument, I really know the, I know the policy argument. What is the legal argument that you would make that, that uh, financial aid based on race should be unconstitutional or illegal that wouldn't also apply to admissions preferences based on race? Um, good questions, and I'll try and answer all of them fast. The first is, if you don't like our chapter 18, read the other 17 chapters. <laughs> our, facts are more, our facts are more important than our opinions. I mean that very seriously. If you think we wimped out in the end, fine, think it. Whip me. I, I'm glad to have you, as long as you buy the book and read the first <laughs> 17 chapters. <laughs> uh, now, why... Um, also, evasion, why is evasion a reason we shrink? Because we think that the kind of evasions that end with the Texas, Texas top 10% plan are in some ways worse than old-fashioned preferences uh, because they bring in more mismatched kids, and mismatches, you know, is our hobby horse at this point. Why ban race-based scholarships without banning all racial preferences? In the Supreme Court, this has gotten to be kind of a cost-benefit analysis. You know, the costs of racial preferences, the benefits of race, we talked about that. When it's race-based scholarships, 
the cost-benefit analysis is easy and clear. You know, there is no benefit to race-based scholarships. It only encourages a bidding war for affluent black students, whether they're going to go to Harvard or Yale or to Penn, who's offering more money to people who don't need it instead of offering it to people who do need it, of whatever race. So we thought that was a slam dunk. We also thought it was necessary to avoid an end run around our second claim, which is race-based preferences can't be any larger than socioeconomic preferences, because the universities might say, in fact, they would say, hey, we can handle that. We'll just give race-based scholarships to even things up. So we would like to plug that, plug that evasion. Okay. We're going to have just one last question. And um, this gentleman right directly here in the middle of the second row. My name is Gerald Chandler from iTech Consultants. I'd like to go back to the question of uh, children without getting married. Uh, both uh, after the ch children is born, how many eventually get married, and so you actually transform yourself into a married family with children, and how many uh, are have stable uh, relationships that may go on 20, 30 years without getting married and yet still have children. Do, does anybody have any evidence on any or, of that? Or, or how many intact families, when the child is born, end up getting divorced? Uh, well, no, I, I don't think anyone. I mean, the, 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 may, I, I think maybe maybe Roger's in favor of mandatory marriage for, for people uh, <laughs> as a solution. Uh, it's an interesting statistic. I decry it. I think people are better with two parent families. Could be two of the same sex or two of opposite sex. I haven't heard Roger's view on that yet. Uh, but uh, I don't think that has much to do with this issue here. I think it has everything to do with this issue here. I think that the reason that there is this enormous pressure on schools to use racial and ethnic preferences is because of the fact that uh, when kids get to be 18 years old, there is a um, real gap in the number of um, African-American kids who are, you know, who, who are doing well in school. And I think that that is traceable directly to the implosion of the black family. And uh, yeah, there are some uh, couples that maybe get married the day after the kid is born, and there are some couples that maybe get divorced after the day uh, after the, the, the kid is born. I understand all that. that. Those are all possibilities. But look, that doesn't explain numbers like the ones that I read. 72.3% of children to African Americans being born out of wedlock, that is a national disaster. And you're not going to joke that away. All right, uh, the book is available outside, Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students. It's intended to help and why universities won't admit it. Uh, Stuart will be glad to sign copies for you. Uh, Rick Sander had to go to another uh, meeting. Um, join us now for lunch up on the second floor, and uh, let's uh, thank uh, our C-SPAN audience for being with us and our speakers for today's performance.